and tranquility to earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. WCDN, FM, Ann Arbor, keeping Richard Nixon's vision of peace and global unity alive with sounds and music from all the cultures of all the people all over the world. That music is destructive. That music. If we had good music playing for people in the happy society on the streets, you know, I feel like uh, my music uh, I have a new record coming out. Or I feel like, well, maybe this time they'll hear it. Living Writers here um, on WCBN, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to have Abraham Verges here in the studio. Welcome, Abraham. Thank you, T. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, well, it's good to see you on this snowy day, um, January 26th, we're, we're taping this show. Um, and Abraham, you're in town. You're actually just beginning your tour um, for the paperback release um, from Vintage Books, Cutting for Stone. Um, last year, it came out in hardcover to, to great success, and now you're on the road with the paperback tour. Indeed I am. In fact, uh, this is my very first stop and my very first interview, so <laughs> a very auspicious uh, time to be with you. In fact, I loved hearing the opening music that you had because that's a song that features very strongly in the book uh, called Tazita. Yes. yes <laughs> Tex managed to find it for that's us incredible. here at the station. That's wonderful, because uh, I've had a hard time finding it on the web, so I need to get a copy from him. <laughs> but I, I love the part in the book where you actually, um, the... the um, Marion, I believe, says that when he left, he made a mixtape and he made sure to put that song on and then some Aqualung, but that um, almost any Ethiopian artist that's like has has their version of this song. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm trying to think of an equivalent example in uh, in Western music, but uh, you know, anybody who's anybody in Ethiopia at one point has done a cover of that song because it's so identifiable with the diaspora, with the uh, with Ethiopia and with the kind of nostalgia that comes with uh, leaving one's country, because the, the very title of the song Tzitha, uh means, you know, uh, a sense of nostalgia. It means uh, remembering, looking back. There really isn't an equivalent word for it in English, but uh, it's a word that 
conveys all that longing and, uh, uh, you know, slight rosy tinted glasses with which we look at the past. <laughs> right. That's a beautiful uh, term. My heart is with you sort of exactly. feeling yeah. my country. Oh. Well, you know, before we go any further, um, let's see. I'm going to read your, your biography here. Um, just to give us a foundation that we can build on. Um, Abraham Verghese is professor and senior associate chair for the theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He was the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics at the University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio, where he is now an adjunct professor. He is the author of My Own Country, a 1994 NBCC finalist and a Time Best Book of the Year, and The Tennis Partner, a New York Times notable book. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, he has published essays and short stories that have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic Monthly, Esquire Granta, The Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. He lives in Palo Alto, California. Um, so... So you're you're out out and about out in the world there. You can find your work many places, and, and much of it has been nonfiction until this point, Abraham. Yeah, much so. of it has been nonfiction. But honestly, T, I think I began writing and went to the Iowa Writers Workshop with uh, the intention of writing fiction. And actually, when I was coming out of Iowa, my first published story was a New Yorker short story called Lilacs, a very dark AIDS story, and. Uh, you know, getting published in The New Yorker was my big break. And I thought, wow, this is... That's uh, a huge break. That doesn't happen break. every day, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. And it turned out the New Yorker editors got to know a bit about my background and that I was an infectious disease physician taking care of people with HIV. And they invited me to write a proposal for a, a longish nonfiction piece on HIV in rural America because I had practiced in Tennessee. And uh, to make a long story short, I worked hard on that piece, but... No need to. We have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> they turned it down uh, for many reasons. They turned it down partly because the editor I was working with hmm. didn't want it. Uh, I mean, it was leaving. And the new editor, Tina Brown, didn't oh. want it. Uh, Maybe she wanted something more lighthearted or so. Well, or... You know, I did a lot of other stuff well, for Tina, but not that oh, particular piece. Uh, and so... Essentially, we were left with a uh, book proposal, my editor, my agent and I, and so we shopped that around, and it was a very peculiar time in American publishing where And the Band Played On had been published mm -hmm. and Paul Monet's beautiful book had been published, but the idea of a heterosexual foreign physician telling the story of rural AIDS, you know, was just, a, it hit a lot of buttons, and um, all of a sudden I had a book contract, yes. and I kind of had to discover how to write nonfiction. I'd never really thought about that and I had to go back and you know read George Orwell and Truman mm. Capote and really make sure mm. I had a sense of what the standard was but uh, to be honest it's been really wonderful to come back to fiction it's been liberating uh, even though I've not begrudged at all the the learning and the and the you know the material that I learned writing nonfiction. and and how when you you did that almost um a private pursuit of, of learning the craft of nonfiction. Um, what uh, what other people did you look to besides Orwell, Capote? Um, and uh, so I read uh, Alfred Kazan, Walker in the City. I read uh, a, a wonderful book called Is There No Place on This Earth for Me? Uh, it was about a woman with schizophrenia. So I found myself reading all kinds of different 
narratives. And, you know, one of the things I realized, the big difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction is uh, when you write nonfiction, because something really happened, you have the reader's inherent interest, mm. you know, and it's a huge advantage. I mean, readers, uh, people are surprised to hear this, but nonfiction outsells fiction, I'm yes. told. 15 to 1 or 20 to 1. Yes. And that time when your book came out, it was also that ground swelling for memoir as well, wasn't it, Abraham? It was, was it uh, around that same time? Yeah, I think you're right. It was 94. And there were, mm. you know, there was certainly a much more of an interest in the genre. It was new enough. And I think the irony now is that uh, even if you have the most beautiful AIDS story, it's very difficult to get any publisher to be interested. Oh, I think right. there's a sense of, you know, they've been there, done that. They're not interested in revisiting that again but at the time there was this interest and i think even more than that there was a great sense of obligation of wanting to do something uh for hiv you know sort of pay tribute and pay and make a testimony to this to this time and of course all those sentiments quickly vanished uh, at least within publishing uh, but you know oh. so I, I learned how to write uh, non-fiction but the 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 great joy of going to fiction is that you no longer are confined by what really happened. You can invent, you can make up, uh, but you have to work, I think, 20 times harder to get the reader to forget in the first two pages that they're reading something that's been invented and mm. get them to suspend their disbelief and never let them down again uh, till the very end <laughs> of the book. That's the challenge of nonfiction, of, yes, of fiction. Yes, of fiction. And, and especially, and you took that challenge very seriously for, <laughs> at least in the paperback version, uh, 658 pages. Indeed. So that's <laughs> like to, to bring that level of um, the rigorous... I don't know, attention to creating your own. But I guess you're, you're creating this this world. And, and if you believe it, then it becomes authenticated in, in your own belief of it. Is that, yeah, could I, that be? I think it's true. But, but I also think that, um, you know, there's something that one of my writing teachers told me in Iowa, which I think is very true. And that is that a short story, in a, in a sense, is an expansionist form. When you're done with a short story, there's not an extra word that you can find to put in there or take out. Whereas a novel, by its very nature, because you've created this world, well, a world is endless, and uh, mm. a world has incredible depth. So a, a novel, by its very nature, is a minimalist form, believe it or not, even a 600-page <laughs> novel. Uh, you are producing a precy, a snapshot, a cross-section of a very complex world. And it's the complexity that gives it its full uh, you know, three dimensions. It's not its length, because, frankly, to describe a world you know, takes... Uh, a lifetime, yeah, infinite number of pages, a lifetime. And so, since since fiction was your your first love, um, were the the fiction writers were were some of the people that you looked to? Were they like um, uh, Marquez, uh, Dickens? Like who who did you look to for this create like for your fictional uh, models or the cohorts of yeah. I think, uh, you know, the two, the two you mentioned are wonderful examples of that genre. And I, I've always admired the kind of book where you pick it up and in, in about two pages you are, so, you are somewhere else. And suddenly you are living this whole life and uh, several lifetimes, in fact, with generations of people. And, you know, you have all these lessons imparted to you about life and about a craft or something. And you come back and it's only Tuesday. <laughs> and yet you're carrying all these lessons with you, and I think that sense of a, of a of a life lived vicariously is the is the quality about the novel that I think most attracts readers of novels. And there are many many wonderful practitioners of that, from 
Cervantes to you know Dickens, uh, to the you know many more modern practitioners, John Irving and uh, you know the likes. I I do think that the modern reader might not have the same patience we once did with uh, you know the Bronte sisters and and uh, writers like that. Even though I think they really are at the pinnacle of their craft. Uh, nevertheless, I think that the modern version of the big novel is still something very satisfying to to most readers. And when you say that, when you mention the Bronte sisters, do you mean because the some of the scope of uh, their stories is more immediate, like an immediate place, and but the years span is there? Is that is that what you meant? Like that's whereas, um, like modern readers when they're looking for something. Um, I guess I'm I'm unclear. Like, do you think it's like that people want something that's the modern readers uh, are looking for a novel that that has something that's more defined in a moment of time, or something like like this that's expansive and that that. Um, that no, I think it's less uh, uh, it's less a matter of time than it is about style and technique. And in, in that, yes. I think with Middlemarsh, you know, there's a certain luxury <laughs> with which, you know, the story builds up in the first pages a couple of I pages I see what you mean now whereas I think in a modern novel you you're allowed the luxury of a big story but you have to get but into you it have to get to it fairly moment. quickly and uh, you have to string your scenes together in a in a in a manner that's you know uh, keeping the pace flowing i mean so i think the sort of you know the relaxed fashion of uh, the the you know uh, the classic english writers might not work these days just because our whole society's sort of attention span is a bit much is much shorter twitter and facebook and right. you know, television and so many channels i think we're used to the notion of quickly getting an image and then another one and then another one and so it's really how you stack those images up and the language that make the novel leisureliness is not as uh, much allowed i think as it might have been one day, once upon a time and so that also goes with what you you started off the program speaking about abraham where it's that um that speaking of that intensity that you're bringing to to every page almost of the story like what uh, what you what you believe is is the hallmark of a fiction piece anyway that intensity that you need to bring to it to to convince the reader of the world that you've created it seems to yeah, go absolutely. with this right i think you have to bring the reader in and given that the reader today is different from the reader 200 years ago you have to bring them in and not let them you know uh, leave this fictional dream of yours and that that means taking into account to some degree their attention span and so i think that really sort of nails the difference between the modern novel i would suspect and the the classics which remain classics they're mm. wonderful and mm. i i certainly have the patience to read that kind of a novel but i well I, and you I, pay tribute in in your own book cutting for stone you have two characters when they have to take turns sitting up in the exactly, evening right. they read middlemarch and yeah, so you do. even begin with the first line you you quote it in your own book Absolutely. to show right the, yeah and actually i, I I have one of the characters reading Middlemarsh and being a little impatient with the way the <laughs> sentence builds up. And, and that's Hema. That's Hema, and she reads it about five times before she finally gets it. And the danger is the modern reader wouldn't read it five times. They'd right. cast it off and pick up another book. I think there's a way of learning how to read, isn't it? And what if you and if you have trusted and gone into reading something like Middlemarch or, or a book that takes you a while before you're by the throat almost in the new world. I, I think if that were, if that's happened for you, maybe as a young person or so, maybe then you learn 
to trust that it could happen you know, again. That's very key, T. And I always tell my uh, medical students, I tell them that if you don't read, if you don't have the habit of taking these little signals we call words <laughs> and making a mental movie in your head, mm-hmm. a fluent movie based on the words you're provided with, if you don't exercise that function, you'll have an atrophy of a particular part of your brain that's responsible for the imagination. So I, I think that the joy of reading, the great joy of reading, is that it's ultimately a collaborative act. Uh, the mm-hmm. writer gives you the words, but you provide your imagination. And the richness of reading is that somewhere in middle space you create this fictional dream. It's not the writer's, it's not yours, it's a, truly a collaborative process. And, and the great proof of that is if you ever go to a movie version of a book that you've loved, right. <laughs> your first reaction is, how did they cast Antonio Bandera to be this character when I had somebody else in mind? And, and that somebody else was your creation. And I think that's the joy of being a reader. And, and on that note, we'll take a short break um, and, and we'll be right back. You've got Living Writers today on the program, Abraham Verghese and his latest, Cutting for Stone. We'll be back. So Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have here in the studio Abraham Verghese. His latest um, is actually his his first novel, um, Cutting for Stone, um, but it's already a national bestseller. Um, I feel like I should also call you doctor. I feel like I should be, I don't, not to be formal, but just, I think because of that imagination, like as I've been reading your book so far and then reading about your, your biography and your life, I've been always addressing you in my mind (laughs) as doctor. (laughs) Um, maybe we should even before, um, we, we read a little bit from Cutting for Stone. Maybe we should talk a little bit about your 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 writer's biography, Abraham, um, in a way, because we've sort of 
touched on it, mm-hmm. but um, uh, and it's connected with this novel because you you set the novel in Ethiopia, and this this is also connected to your life. That's where you were born. Um, would you like to take it from sure. here for yeah, a bit? Um, <laughs> so the novel is uh, autobiographical in the sense that uh, I followed the politics and the geography that I knew well. Uh, my parents were school teachers in Ethiopia, and uh, I grew up there. I even began my early medical education at a new school started by the British Council for East Africa, and you know, really had a wonderful thing going until civil war broke out. And so, in that sense, I followed the the larger trajectory of the of the novel. That's some line that you just said too. I really had a wonderful thing going on until <laughs> civil war broke out. I know, and so. Um, you know, uh, the the I departed from the novel script at that point because I then eventually finished my medical studies and you know uh, came to America and so on. But uh, I, I always wanted to write this novel that had to do with this land, which I grew up uh, you know feeling was my country. And uh, well, what the, age did you actually leave Abraham? So I left when I was twenty something. So you know. So it is. Uh, it was yeah, it was a very painful thing because I, I had never heard the word expatriate before, and when the military government took over and uh, the first thing they did after deposing the emperor was they closed the universities and sent the students out of town to try and get all the intellectuals away from the center of the action, you know, a Cambodian style, back to the countryside revolution, and expatriates were asked to fend for themselves to leave, and I had never heard that term before, and. Uh, in, in because way, your parents were from from India, India. Hired, uh, as school teachers, a, a big, uh, massive hiring of about 400 people from one little Christian community in India, uh, because Ethiopia itself is also a Christian community. And so, uh, you know, for me, that was my big moment of separation. And in, in a way, that's become the operating metaphor, I think, for much of my writing is the sense of a, of loss or a, or an outsider looking in. Yes. And so, uh, you know, that is the writing biography. And I must say that the the, the business about the medical part, you just said uh, you have this urge to call me doctor, which <laughs> I appreciate. Uh, I, I think that in many ways, a lot is made about the fact that the physician is writing the novel. And I sometimes wonder why, in the sense that I don't think that uh, I never use MD behind my name, behind anything I've written, uh, you know, any book I've written. And I think to the reader, it shouldn't really matter that the person writing this is a sociologist or a lawyer or a, or a physician. It is obviously interesting. I think it makes for good fodder. I think for it's us a marketing thing. More, Perhaps so, is yeah. It? I but don't know. but that said, I will say this: that um, you know, I think it's been a, a wonderful training to be a writer, to be a physician as well. In the sense that, you know, a lot of the things that I learned in writing school. God is in the details and so on, are, are the exact same things one learns in medical school, the, the detailed observation, the, the stringing together of multiple observations to make, a, to make a whole, you know, trying to find, trying to be parsimonious with your explanations for multiple things. Mm. You know, those are all sort of writerly things too, you know, and I, and I think, uh, but, but, but I must say that for me, the writer part of me and the doctor part of me aren't really that separate. I, I think that for me, the writing emanates from my, my great love of medicine and, uh, you know, the desire to, to sort of tell some kind of truth. Uh, I love Dorothy Allison's quote that fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about the, how the world lives. And something you can't even really sometimes get at by giving the facts. You can't. I mean, you know, think of Uncle Tom's Cabin. It, uh, it ended... Uh, 
it ended slavery in this country, a fictional work. Mm-hmm. That is the power of fiction. And so I think the urge to write, in my case, I'm not generalizing, I don't know that this is true for others, but the, the urge to write, in my case, comes very much out of the same uh, sense I have about medicine being a passionate and romantic pursuit and the desire to explain, the desire to make sense, the desire to pay tribute to it is really the genesis of all my writing. Uh, so in that sense, it is relevant, I suppose, to the critic to know a bit about my background, but to the reader who is collaborating with me on making this fictional movie, it isn't really that relevant. All that matters is that I don't let them down uh, in the course of the words that I use, you know. Yes. It, it seems, I think, when I was, because uh, you have a website, abrahamvergeese.com, um, that people could check out as well. Um, and there, on that, you say, um, like, one of you want the readers um, in this novel, um, cutting for stone to see that um, entering medicine was a passionate quest, a romantic pursuit, a spiritual calling, a privileged yet hazardous undertaking. Yeah, and I truly believe that. I mean, I think that what gets lost in all the modern debate about healthcare reform and DRGs and all that is, is you know, I think it's it kills that quality about medicine, which brings most of us in. And uh, ironically, I was brought into medicine because of a book. And actually, if you speak to a generation of physicians, uh, the generation before mine, they will often mention Aerosmith by St. Clair Lewis, or they'll mention microbe hunting by Paul de Cruyff, or in England, it was the Citadel. And in my case, it was of human bondage, even though the medical part of that book is fairly minor. But, you know, I, I think that's what books do. They speak to us in very individual ways. And uh, one of my intentions was to, to write a book that might awaken that spark in a young, youngish reader, a college reader, who might say, you know, I don't really care what the Senate and the Congress finally come up with. Uh, it doesn't really matter because this is about a calling. This is about something much larger than that. And I, that's the part that I was trying to come a- get across in that passage in the website. Yes. And it, and that makes sense of so much from, um, from reading uh, the stories because of what's happening in um, the, the surgical theater three um, in missing hospital instead of mission hospital right. <laughs> and there's the whole story behind that layer right. upon layer of 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 um moments in in this un- unfolding this epic really um telling of this these people's lives and how they intertwine but um you see um like what medicine in in a way that's like more in a raw form than what you see if you were to walk into the University of Michigan um, hospital or the medical centers here in some ways. Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in a funny way, I think that there really isn't that much difference between the kind of medicine you see in, in a place like Ethiopia and here in the sense that the physician-patient relationship is the same. Uh, what What is different is that in a place like, uh, you know, like the one I describe in the book, which is lacking in almost every resource, the physician-patient relationship is thrown into stark relief and the sort of fiduciary responsibility of the physician to the patient, all those things, far from being abstract terms, become very palpable and visible. And I think the great danger when you come to very advanced medicine uh, in places like Stanford Mm -hmm. or Michigan is that, you know, medical care is so fragmented, so sophisticated, so technology-driven that you can almost get the impression that these things are not operative, that there is not a fiduciary connection between, you know, relationship between patient and physician. And I think that that was my intention in this novel is to 
contrast these two uh, strikingly different styles of medicine only to show that the physician-patient relationship is truly sacrosanct and beyond uh, any of these other, you know, well, and, and necessary for the, so what Completely becomes necessary. healing, absolutely, like the, yeah. yes. In fact, my work, my work at Stanford, my 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 great interest there, and the thing that I promote is really the the whole sense of. Uh, you know, the, the importance of the ritual of examining the patient, the ritual of interviewing the patient. And, you know, rituals to us are all about transformation. You know, we get married with great ceremony to signal our transformation from, you know, loneliness and solitude to populating our world with this other person, you know, and hopefully eternal bliss. Um, you know, we, we have a ritual for inaugurating a president. It's cathartic. It's transformative. So similarly, I think the ritual of examining a patient is a you know highly sacred ritual where one individual tells all their secrets to to a physician something they may not even tell their preacher or mm. spouse and then they disrobe and allow examination which in any Most other context yeah and in any other context that would be assault and I, I i teach that you know in this day and age just because we have modern technology uh, you cannot shortchange that process if you take that honor the patient's given you and you're clumsy in your examination, or you're not listening, or you're sitting behind a desk and ticking off the various labs and things you want, uh, those are not surrogates for the ritual. And the ritual, I mean, if you listen to the wording people use about doctors, and when they're unhappy with us, they, they have choice words. One of their favorite ones is, he or she never touched me. They never, quotes, laid a hand on me. And these are, these are not just uh, metaphors, these are you know, concrete descriptions of a failing in the ritual. So I think ritual is important. And part of my great joy in this novel <laughs> was to be able to, you know, to deal out the kind of medicine I liked and condemn the kind I didn't. And uh, someone said that uh, <laughs> a novel is truly a justice-dealing machine. And so um, I had the great joy of dealing out the kind of justice I thought was necessary. Well, it's, you, you can definitely see the spirit of that in there. And it's interesting from even, um, I'm, I'm wondering, how um, how many years was this novel in the oh making? Oh, God, don't ask me that. <laughs> well, well, no, because I'm thinking, because what you're you're talking about, like that that calling and that connection with, with people, like at the bedside, and, and, and then also teaching at Stanford, I'm, I'm thinking that 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 you're like amazing like that that you because this now, that if I were takes amazing, all this, this energy <laughs> right this like what's in our it core <laughs> if i were amazing the novel would be done in two years but the, the, the novel took <laughs> no. me eight years precisely because you know i have a very uh, demanding day job and it's one that's very satisfying and so i could only sort of work at this a little bit every evening and weekends if i was lucky and so on so it took a long time and shouldn't really have uh, taken that long but but I, but i also say this that um you know, I, I actually think that if I had a house on the Riviera and the opportunity to write all day and, you know, months on end, I would probably not produce a single thing. There's something about, <laughs> I think there's something about the, you know, the uh, the the work itself that is creative. Uh, you know, William Carlos Williams, my great hero, poet laureate and a pediatrician yes. in Rutherford, New Jersey till his 90s. Uh, William Carlos Williams entered medicine because he felt that for a poet to have significance or substance, it, it, he or she had to be connected to the real world in some way. And so he became a, a physician, you know, after the fact, if you will. And I, I'm a strong believer in that. I think that medicine is really what gives me voice. And um, when, I'm, uh, when I'm asked, which is very rare by, for writerly advice, my first advice is get a good day job. <laughs> 
Only because it's I think not it's a bad, very yeah, not bad advice. I mean, I'm serious because it's really hard to be a writer uh, when your writing is meant to pay the bills and feed your kids. Thank God I never had to, you know, uh, look to writing to pay my rent and buy, you know, uh, milk for the kids. Uh, that's a very hard sort of pressure to put on a writer. And I think it's actually been liberating to me to to not have to worry about uh, writing for that purpose. Uh, what it does, though, it makes it very slow. It makes it uh, slow, and uh, you know. But it, it's a great advantage because this is going to sound strange to you, T. But I, um, you know, it's not that I'm lacking in ambition for my book. I want the best things to happen to this book, have it win all the great prizes, you know. But all along, I always had the great sense that uh, it didn't have to happen tomorrow. I could take my time, get it right, and if it never happened, I'd be just fine. You know, I wouldn't have lost anything. I'm I'm so much in love with what I do. That kind of liberty to write, I think, is rare. And uh, if you can find it, uh, you know, b- by all means, one shouldn't be embarrassed about it. So I'm happy to be a slow writer <laughs> for all the right reasons. Exactly. Well, <clears throat> can we hear some? Sure. Abraham, would you mind reading? It? I wouldn't, and I've sort of picked arbitrarily okay. a passage early on in the book. It's actually in the prologue, which... Uh, sets the stage for the narrator Marion and what he is about to uh, uh, what he is about to say, um, and uh, you know I'll, I'll read for about a minute or so. Is that all right? Sounds wonderful. Uh, so Marion, the narrator, is reading. And he says uh, he, he's talking, and he says, "46 and four years have passed since my birth, and miraculously, I have the opportunity to return." to that room. I find I am too large for that chair now, and the cardigan sits atop my shoulders like the lace amos of a priest. But chair, cardigan, and calendar print of a transvertation are still there. And by the way, I should explain, he's describing a room where his mother, who he never knew, who was a nun and a surgical assistant, used to sit and spend her time. I, Marion Stone, have changed, but little else has. Being in, a, in that unaltered room propels a thumbing back through time and memory. We come unbidden into this life, and we, if we are lucky, we find a purpose beyond starvation, misery, and early death, which, lest we forget, is the common lot. I grew up and I found my purpose, and it was to become a physician. My intent wasn't to save the world as much as to heal myself. Few doctors will admit this, certainly not young ones, but subconsciously, in entering the profession, we must believe that ministering to others will heal our woundedness, and it can, but it can also deepen the wound. I chose the specialty of surgery because of matron, that steady presence during my boyhood and adolescence. What is the hardest thing you can possibly do She said to me when I went to her for advice on the darkest day of the first half of my life. I squirmed. How easily matron probed the gap between ambition and expediency. Why must I do what is hardest? Because, she said, because, Marion, you are an instrument of God. Don't leave the instrument sitting in its case, my son. Play. Leave no part of your instrument unexplored. Why settle for three blind mice when you can play the Gloria? How unfair of Matron to evoke that soaring chorale, which always made me feel that I stood with every mortal creature looking up to the heavens in dumb wonder. She understood my unformed character. But Matron, I can't dream of playing Bach, the Gloria, I said under my breath. I'd never played a string or wind instrument. I couldn't read music. 
No, Marion, she said, her gaze soft, reaching for me, her gnarled hands rough on my cheeks. Not Bach's Gloria, yours. Your Gloria lives within you. The greatest sin is not finding it, ignoring what God made possible in you. I was temperamentally better suited to a cognitive discipline, to an introspective field, internal medicine or perhaps psychiatry. The sight of the operating theater made me sweat. The idea of holding a scalpel caused coils, caused coils to form in my belly. It still does. Surgery was the most difficult thing I could imagine. And so I became a surgeon. Thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um... Well, let's take a short break, Abraham, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more about your novel, Cutting for Stone. Um, today in the studio, Abraham Verghese. I'm T. Hetzel, and we've got Tex in the engineering booth. Thank you, Tex. We're going to take a short break and be back. to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and, and today in the studio, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Well, we'll knock the doctor off because you're wearing your writer hat. That's right. right? Well, <laughs> but I love that you, you um, made the point that it's not as if they're these separate worlds. That yeah, I think people important. keep wanting to, you know, make a binary being out of me and uh, have a writer's side. And, <laughs> but you're one person. But I'm one person. And, uh, you know, I actually think that all I'm doing is giving voice to many of the sentiments we all have and if if they strike some chord it's because they're in a sense you know universal sentiments uh, i think physicians we make a lot of the fact that there are physician writers i always think that maybe there should be a lot more given how many of us are privy to these extraordinary 
intimate moments uh, of engagement with patients. And, you know, I think it does. How would that work then, Abraham, too? Because a lot of the stories, as you say, you're, you're learning and you're, you're seeing people uh, and they're telling you things that they might not tell anyone else. Um, how do you balance that? Because with, with your nonfiction, that would be a very different thing. But then, but also... You, not you, not use using it, but not in you know in a not in a use like a bad way, but using it for the fiction as well, like the stories to tell the stories for the. Greater yeah, I think truth. you know for the nonfiction, there's clearly uh, you know guidelines there that uh, guide us all, and I, I you know make it made it a point to get permission and uh, mm. you know make sure that what I had there was acceptable to the patient, unless it was completely you know more a principle I was illustrating than a particular person or clinical event. And I think with fiction, most of us wind up drawing not so much on particular incidents as much as, you know, particular uh, dilemmas that are, uh, you know, commonplace, uh, or even if they're extraordinary, they're, you know, every physician has a whole bag full of extraordinary incidents like that. And, you know, uh, they're always illustrative. If they're just extraordinary, just cataloging them doesn't make any sense. But Mm. if they are, you know, in that extraordinariness, if they reveal a uh, a common principle. I think that's when, that's when you sort of strike gold. Is that something that you began writing then? Just as um, so, so as a young man, uh, you you went towards medicine, but you were you also always keeping notebooks and uh, I because was, you said you went to Iowa for mm-hmm. fiction. So can you tell us? Well, about I, I, you know, I actually think that had I grown up in this country, I might well have become a. A journalist, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed words, and I had absolutely no head for math, so I <laughs> knew I wasn't destined for engineering. Say, um, and Indian Indian families are very much like middle class Jewish families. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, or a failure. These are your choices. You know? so, and, and so I felt very driven to the One profession. One of my best friends is a doctor, and her parents are both from India. And so I know what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. And But I must say, having said that, I, I didn't go into that with any reluctance. I, I loved the idea of medicine. And as I said, I went into it because of a book. But somewhere along the way, I... I uh, wanted to write that and it was it was during my time in Tennessee I was taking care of all these young men with HIV who were dying an extraordinary number for a town of 50,000 no one had anticipated it and it appeared that I had stumbled onto a, a phenomenon of migration where young man grows up in a small town and leaves for all the same reasons that you and I leave small towns uh, jobs education or because they were gay uh, but in their case, they were leaving because they were gay. That was the reason that they left. Mm. A very silent exodus. And they went to the big cities and found themselves. But tragically, at some point, the virus found them. And now they were making this return to their small towns, a very visible return because they were now sick and uh, oh, so uh, that, dying. And I that see. was the reason for the number. And I, I felt a strong urge to, to put this on paper for many different reasons. One was that... Uh, I enjoyed the, not enjoyed, but I found myself reaching to fiction because it was the one arena in which I could conquer these uh, things that were otherwise not conquerable in my day-to-day life. Uh, uh, The inexorable fall of the CD4 count and the progression of death. In fact, I ran across, many years later, I ran across a definition of fiction that I love, which was that fiction is one means of achieving success at the limits of the ability of the will to express itself by other means, which is a very complex definition. But what it means is that... You <laughs> pretty comprehensive in that complexity. <laughs> what it says is that, you know, you and I, in our day-to-day work, 
we can't cross over into death and tell what's going on and come back. We can't get into each other's heads. We can't go back mm-hmm. in time. But by God, by the vehicle of fiction, you can do all these things. Uh, and if you pull it off, you wind up, you know, uh, promulgating a, a truth of some sort. And I just love that feeling. And that's really when I began to write is out of the, the misery and suffering that I was seeing, there was a strong impulse to write. And I, I can't explain it beyond that. And my decision to go to Iowa was because after five years of that, I was just getting burnt out. And I knew that if I wanted to take care of people with HIV for a lifetime, which I wanted to, uh, I needed to take breaks. And uh, you know, I'm proud to say I'm still taking care of people with HIV. Many people are not. Many people along the way have you know, have just stopped or got burnt out. And, uh, you know, I think that my way of not getting burnt out was in part the writing. And going to Iowa was a wonderful sabbatical, a wonderful way to come to the Midwest. My only medical connection at that point was I was working in the HIV clinic at the University of Iowa once a week. But the rest of my time was gloriously free to attend the workshop, write, develop my voice and you know, just a wonderful period looking back. Uh, and that my, was two years, Abraham, was it? was it? a year and a half. I crammed okay. it into <laughs> four semesters into a year and a half because, you know, I took a tremendous risk coming to Iowa in the sense that... And you had a young family. I had a young family. Had... I cashed in my retirement. I cashed in my tenured position and at the university. that was in Tennessee? In Tennessee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cashed in my 401k plan and dragged my reluctant wife and kids here. And, you know, honestly, I, I'm not sure I would do it again because it cost me my marriage and... Uh, and at the time, it seemed like it was my only option. It was either that or collapse from, uh, you right. know, from overwork and uh, just, uh, you know, what, what, whatever the term is one uses for nervous collapse, you know. I really felt something like that coming on. And so to me at that time, it seemed like it was either this or death in a funny way. Well, that uh, seems the wise thing to well, do. Sometimes you, you know, don't. Maybe it's not even something that's brave. Like, you know, if you think, oh, I'm walking away from tenure. But if you must do it, you must do it. It's, so that's the sense I had. That's the sense I had. And, you know, I mean, good things have happened because of it. Terrible things have happened because of it. So, you know, I think uh, you can't overanalyze those things. Uh, it's the nature of life that the lessons that uh, are valuable to you, you only learn after the fact, by and large. <laughs> and, you know, it's why our kids don't necessarily listen to us, even mm. though we certainly know what's best for them. <laughs> <laughs> and you might want to save them from something. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so the timeline with this, I am sort of unclear with um, when you went, so you went from Tennessee, well, you were, you'd been in Boston, then you uh, returned to Tennessee and, and you worked for five years mm-hmm. with, with people who had HIV with very, um, so very, very, very hard and, 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 but, good work that you were doing and then you went to Iowa for two years is that when you wrote Lilacs and you had the dialogue with the New Yorker yes, is indeed. that so your your fiction started you started shaping it there exactly. and then sent it sent uh, and then you know as I was leaving Iowa I badly needed to get back to full-time medicine to you know pay the bills and get get a job I picked uh, I decided to go to El Paso Texas to Texas Tech University which at that time uh, you know, and even now, it was one of the most remotest outposts of American medicine. You, so, couldn't, you couldn't go any further south without being in Mexico. So why there? What drew you there? Well, because, you know, I, I felt that they were the one place in the country at the time who, where they, what they wanted from me, I could give them without uh, damping, without impacting my evenings for writing and my weekends for writing. Uh, they didn't want me to publish grants, I mean, bring in grants or publish papers necessarily. They were very content for me to come in and be a good teacher and uh, take care of patients, and I was happy to do that. And, uh, you know, I sometimes think the irony of my being at Stanford now is that had I gone to Stanford after Iowa, 
I would not have written any books because I would have been very busy trying to make tenure and, you know, which requires hardcore science and publication. And and so it's ironic to me that going to El Paso allowed me to produce uh, two and, you know, two and a half books, almost three books there that are being widely taught in medical schools and is the reason that I was, you know, hired to Stanford in many ways. So um, there is some irony there. That's but a, I, a lovely irony. And so is there um, now a, a, like a, a, a good trend where um, your books and, and other people's, maybe uh, like Atul Gawande's mm-hmm. writings, like where it's becoming more, it's recognized that as, um, can you talk a little bit about that, that idea of maybe writing as being some way for medical students to even a- approach this this new uh, this calling of theirs and this healing of people and and trying to figure out the balance of of empathy and uh. yeah I, th- I think there's a strong sense that um, you know one of the dangerous things that happens to medical students and medical people uh, myself included is that as you 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 might go into medicine for all the right reasons because of a tremendous personal experience a loss you had but the great danger is as as you go into medicine and you just you know you're not drinking from a little garden fountain anymore you're drinking from a fire hose that's that's the analogy and it's coming at you you know such so much data you have to absorb and the great danger is that you can become so disease focused that you become almost cynical about the human condition you know you 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 begin to think of people as the diabetic foot in bed three and the heart attack in bed four and you know this is a legitimate danger and I, and I think that one of the goals in in you know reading books like mine or reading The Death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy, for example, which I love to teach, is that you're reminding the student of the of the sort of broader picture, you know, and I, I always think that the function of literature in medicine is to preserve the imagination for the suffering of the patient. In other words, that, you know, students come in with a great capacity to imagine the suffering of patients. And then as they go from their preclinical to their clinical years, or as I call it from their pre-cynical to their cynical years, uh, you know, they lose that imagination and, and a short story uh, writing like Atoll's or perhaps mine, you know, I think manages to remind them of the the broader picture out there, the larger story. And, um, you know, I think fiction has a very special function in medicine. And I've always argued that case. Um, and the death of Ivan Illich is a great case in point. Another one would be uh, Bastard Out of Carolina by uh, by Dorothy Allison. I mean, you can read about child abuse from a textbook and think that you, oh, I know child abuse, I can recognize the injuries. Mm-hmm. You have no idea of the emotional impact until you read something like Bastard Out of Carolina, and then you, then you feel it. Then you are inhabiting the patient's shoes as best you can. Uh, and and you know, I think that function of medicine in the last decade or two uh, has gone from being completely, you know out in left field, not something anybody wanted to really talk about, to being mainstream. Uh, but it's still hard to get the students' complete attention to that because they are they become very bottom-line oriented. Is this going mm. to be on the exam? Uh, do I need to know this? <laughs> you know, so because there's so much. Because there is so much, and I, I completely feel for them. I mean, I, my heart is completely with them. And yet, you know, our job is to remind them of the you know the the human element that brought them here in the first place and and the wholeness of it exactly. somehow right not the piece of it yeah. um uh and so was that something then when you moved to San Antonio um is that something with the the humanities and that center of humanities and ethics was that i guess i'm wondering if you if you believe since writing has 
has been something very important in, in your own life uh, as a person uh, and, and impacted you as a physician. Is that something that you also brought to yeah. this, like San Antonio uh, like or, or to Stanford? Well, not to Stanford. So this is an interesting story. Okay. <laughs> I, I confess that I, I went to San Antonio because I thought I was offered this job to start a center for medical humanities and ethics. And I thought, you know, I love literature. I believe it's important to students. Well, what a wonderful opportunity it would be to to run a center where our job is to, among other things, introduce students to literature and have a curriculum in all four years of the, of the med school, you know, a required curriculum. And I think we did a great job. We raised a lot of money, had a big center, and, and a fundraising was a big part of what I had to do. And we, we, I think, you know, really left our students with a wonderful four-year curriculum where they came out of it <laughs> with a broad vocabulary and lots of stories. But it was very hard. I felt that it was really hard to get the students' attention because, as I said, they're getting so much coming at them. It was easy for them to dismiss all the stuff as, yeah, yeah, all that touchy-feely stuff, the you know. Fl- yes, yeah. yeah. Even though these are the very students who loved the idea of this when they first came in and quickly became, you know, uh, turned by the data that they had to, to achieve. But we got are their we attention. Are we making better doctors? Than, like, is that the same? Is that something that's happening in the States, in your opinion? Or yeah. is it something no, that's happening all over. worldwide? It's happening oh. Worldwide, more so in the States, I think we really took the lead on this. But the, the difficulties, I found that you had to be so dramatic to get their attention. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd come in with their eyes rolling at the ceiling, oh, God, another humanities session. And we'd bring in someone who'd been burnt to a crisp and had pleaded with his caregivers to let him die and had sued his caregivers. And, you know, his uh, mother had sued back saying they should make him live. You know, we had to bring in people looking like John the Baptist with, you know, artificial limbs. And, you know, <laughs> and I, I felt it was hard work and uh, memorable, <laughs> memorable events. <laughs> it sounds they'll, memorable. It does. It sounds like you succeeded. Never forget. I mean, this, yeah. I'm, I'm actually describing a very famous ethics case, the case of Dax Coward. And Dax is a friend. He's a former Vietnam fighter pilot who, in an accident that killed his father, he was burnt to a crisp, lost his eyes, his hands, his everything. And his first conscious talk was to say, let me die. I don't yes. want to survive this, you know. Yeah. Anyway, and, and at that point, patient autonomy wasn't what it is today. And uh, against his wishes, they kept him going. He now became a lawyer and still argues articulately that they should have allowed him to, since he was reasonable and conscious and making good decisions, they should have allowed him to carry out his wishes. Uh, he wasn't asking anyone to kill him. He was just saying, I have the right as an individual not to have you do things to me if I don't want them done. But but I'm digressing. What I'm trying to say is I, I left that job after six years because I felt we'd succeeded. But I felt personally that I had much more effectiveness one-on-one at the bedside of the student than I did in that big classroom session. Mm. Uh, And I'm a clinician at heart. I I don't think I can survive very long if I'm not seeing patients. And I felt that that was the setting in which I had the best influence. And that's the setting in which I needed to invoke Chekhov or Tolstoy. Mm. And if I could affect one student in a profound way at the bedside with a patient... Well, the ramifications are huge. That one student in a lifetime, you know, of practice affects yes. so many hundreds of patients. And so that's been my rationale. So I'm back at Stanford. I'm very much a, a clinician. I see patients. I teach. The only difference is Stanford, for the first time, has given me uh, this, this sense that my writing is my research equivalent. So uh, you know, other people dis- disappear to their labs, and I disappear to a, a room that uh, they've given me a second office, and if I reveal the location of that office to UT, I'm happy to do that. I have to kill you, though, after that, because it's a secret office. And so, um, you know, that, that, 
I'm back to being a clinician, but my writing has been welcomed into the fold, if you will. I'm out. I'm out of the out from the cold. I'm into the into the warmth by the hearth. <laughs> well, that's good to hear because it seems like I'm glad you're by the hearth. Then the hearth. Um, uh, what any current projects that you're also working on while you're on this book tour? Are you uh, taking a notebook along? Are you? Yeah, you know, the notebook is always along. And to be honest, uh, when I was done with this book, uh, I had spent so many years thinking about this novel before I began to write it. I'd been distracted by nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I had all yes. these things saved up for this novel. And when the novel was done a year and a half ago, I honestly felt like I had nothing more to say. And, uh, you know, the worst question an interviewer could ask me was, and what are you working on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Glad I got it in. <laughs> but, uh, it took this long. I can finally say that I, I finally have a genesis of another story. I, all I know is that it involves Texas. And a wonderful retired doctor who I met, and I don't quite know if it's going to be fiction or nonfiction, but at least I feel like I can that there is something to write about again. Yes, and did you bring your cowboy boots then also with you? Do Not you, this time. Maybe, <laughs> no, maybe. Well, maybe when you're in your your um, undisclosed location, Stanford office, maybe when you're um, evoking Texas, you'll be wearing your cowboy Absolutely. boots as part of your writing. I will indeed. Um, oh, well, it's, I've so enjoyed I talking have too. with Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here on the show. We'll g- come back anytime Abraham oh, I appreciate that. thank you thank so you. much thank and you. and um and cutting for stone uh you can go out and get the paperback version is is available now um thanks so much to tex for engineering thanks tex um, for, for the music especially <laughs> yes and for michelle for getting abraham here and to kate for sending me this great book um again abraham Verghese, his his novel cutting for stone i'm t hetzel until next time
play. Wall takes it across the timeline. Gets a screen for field foul. Gives it back out to Dawkins. Back to Wall. Open three from the left wing. He got it. Derek Wall ties the game. Wall puts it in the face. Albrecht steals it from Russell. Oh my God. Albrecht is the other left layup. Lefty. The team, the team, the team. Good Wednesday to you all, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor on 88.3 in the Ann Arbor area. I'm your host, David Carlson, and across the glass in Prod A, Studio A in WCBN, I have Kevin Klein and Will Yang. Welcome, guys. How are you guys doing? We're good. Good. Good, especially after that big win against Maryland last night. Yes, so we have some good basketball to talk about. Um, it was Super Tuesday last night in the college basketball world, and at 7 o'clock, a game tipped off between the Mountaineers of West Virginia and the Kansas Jayhawks in Morgantown. Morgantown, I like that name, by the way, Morgantown, West Virginia. It flo- flows off the tongue real nice. Um, but anyways, the Mountaineers beat the number one Jayhawks uh, in their student section, rushed the floor. And then a couple of hours later, in Ann Arbor, right uh, close to home, uh, we, not we, the Michigan Wolverines knocked off the number three Maryland Terrapins. So two top three teams in the college basketball rankings go down last night. Um, boys, your initial thoughts. We can get, we, can we start with the Kansas game just chronologically? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, Kansas... It, I think everyone, most most everyone, watched that Oklahoma Kansas game just a couple of days ago, and Kansas. Well, it looks like they were just exhausted after that. I know they had a previous game against Texas Tech that they came out and won, but this one, especially going on the road to Morgantown, uh, West Virginia is no uh, sleeper team. They're number eleven in the nation, and it just seemed like uh, they just had no answer for the Mountaineers. Um, Jay Sean Page scored 26 for West Virginia, and even though Perry Ellis dropped 20-plus uh, points like he usually does, it was just no uh, no match for the Mountaineers, who who definitely had the momentum and, and the heart last night. Well, yeah, I think it just goes to show that any there's no number one unbeatable team in college basketball this year. In past years, there's been sometimes Kentucky or a Duke team that would just be on a whole new level of everyone else, but... I think just the Kansas losing in such a way in West Virginia shows that everyone is exposed and there's it's anyone's game um, come this March. And I think it just shows that Kansas does have some flaws. I think West Virginia's press defense really exposed uh, Kansas's ball handlers and 